Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. Coming at you from the perennially purple state of Ohio, the home of purple prose such as this, I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Joining me from the deep blue state of California is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. Joining the two of us today from the deep red state of Montana is Dr. Gillian Glaze, a visiting assistant professor of history at the University of Montana at Missoula and an adjunct instructor for SNHU. Today, the three of us are going to talk about Gillian's background, define a visiting assistant professor of history, and talk about her experiences with the book publication process. Gillian has also recorded an episode for our sister podcast series, History Soundbites, on the topic of her new book, so keep an eye out for that. That episode will go live in the next few weeks. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Gillian Glace, and I'm a visiting professor at the University of Montana, uh, Missoula, and I also teach online for SNHU. Gillian, could you tell us a little bit about your background? So how you first came to be interested in history and then move into a formal degree and then transitioning into how you eventually use that degree? Sure. I was really interested in history by high school. I had thought that I wanted to be a veterinarian, but it turns out I'm not great at hard sciences. So I realized even as early as high school that I needed to kind of go in a different direction. And I was always really interested in reading and writing and thinking critically. And so by the time I got to college at the University of Montana, I decided to declare a history major. And by that point, I'd also done some pretty extensive work in French language. So I did a French language major as well, and then added a political science minor to that just for fun. And in the course of my time at the University of Montana, I did a study abroad program for a semester in France. And at that point, I was thinking about going to graduate school in history, and I realized I wanted to do something with French history and European history. So after finishing at U of M, I went on to the University of Oregon, where I got my master's degree in European history, and then I decided to go for it with the PhD. So I transferred to the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I earned my PhD there in French history with an emphasis in the 20th century. So I'm trained as a European historian. I'm trained as a modern European historian. And then while I was there, I picked up a minor in African history, which has not only influenced the course of my research, but also the course of my teaching. So now I am uh, teaching in a position that's much more globally focused than Europe focused, which has been a lot of fun. So I guess you could say now I'm more of a global historian rather than a European historian, but still with a strong background in uh, European history. Coming at this from the career perspective, you mentioned earlier that you are a visiting assistant professor. What is a visiting assistant professor for those <laughs> students out there who are unfamiliar with the operation? Yeah, you raise a really good question. I'm not even sure I know. Well, that actually has a lot to do with my career trajectory, so I guess I can talk a little bit about that. When I was finishing up my PhD at Wisconsin, I was lucky enough to land a tenure-track position at a small liberal arts college called Carroll College in Montana. And so I started there, and I was there for eight years, so I became an associate professor, and for a while I was chair of the department. And then I made one of those decisions that we might call a life decision, and I decided to step away from that position without anything lined up for a whole host of very interesting reasons. And um, my husband at the time was living in Missoula, where the University of Montana is located. So 
some colleagues of mine found out that I had resigned my position at Carroll and they said, hey, we've got some classes for you. Do you want to teach her just for a semester? And I was like, sure, that would be great. And now we're, I think this is my fourth year at U of M. Been fantastic. And so I'm not, in terms of distinctions and the reason they call me a visiting professor, I'm not a tenure track professor, nor am I a tenured professor. So they call me a visiting professor just to kind of give me, I guess, a fancy title. But I teach in a variety of areas. I teach in history. I teach in the Global Leadership Initiative, which is an interesting global program. It's a four-year program here at U of M. I also teach in the Honors College, and then I teach online for the African American Studies program, which is actually how I started teaching online. When I started teaching online here, I realized, well, now I've got some skills, and maybe I can apply to SNHU. I had wanted to work for SNHU for a while, but I saw that one of the requirements was to have online teaching experience. And unfortunately, my previous institution didn't teach very many online classes. And so I was sort of lacking in that. And then once I got to the University of Montana and started teaching online here, I was like, oh, I bet I could now apply to SNHU. So I did. And that's how I ended up working at both SNHU and the University of Montana, Missoula. And what's nice about my job at U of M, Missoula, is that I teach both on campus and online classes. And then I also have the online classes through SNHU. So it's a really nice mix for me right now of face-to-face interaction with students as well as online teaching, which I really enjoy. So you're a visitor who came but never left. Right. So people get confused. (laughs) They start to panic thinking that I'm going to leave and they need to take a class with me right now. I'm like, no, I'm really not going anywhere. In fact, some of my colleagues didn't even know that I had left my previous position. They thought I was going back. And I was like, no, I'm here for as long as you'll have me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you here for sure. Um, Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit about what life is like in Montana for a Europeanist and African-focused scholar. <laughs> and maybe uh, maybe you can dive a little bit into the distinctions that you see between teaching history online as well as in the classroom for those interested in um, maybe how you tailor the approach to both. So in terms of life in Montana for a European historian and a globally focused historian working on issues like Africa, I mean, it, it can actually be a bit lonely. We do have some other Europeanists here in my department at UM. And there was another Europeanist at Carroll College when I was there. And we do have some Europeanists around the state. But one of the challenges, and I'm sure both of you can appreciate this since you live in rather large states geographically, is just the ge- geographical space between institutions. So it's hard for all of us to get together, you know, for workshops and things like that. And in fact, I think we could actually do a better job of trying to do that. So one of the things that I've done to connect with other scholars internationally is to actually get on Twitter. And Twitter has been fantastic because I've been able to connect with all of these different global scholars throughout the world whose work I know and who are coming up, you know, as graduate students or new faculty. And so that has really given me the community that I guess for a while I was kind of missing. And one of the things that's interesting, too, is that I right now I'm the only person teaching African history at the University of Montana, Missoula, and I was the only person teaching African history at Carroll. And for a while, I was the only person teaching African history in the entire state of Montana. So that's been really interesting. What's nice at U of M is that there are colleagues in uh, departments like political science that do focus on um, different issues related to Africa. There's an economist who does a lot of work in um, the field of African studies. So I have been able to connect with them. But it is an interesting challenge being in a rural state that is rather geographically isolated from uh, the global community and then trying to bring that global focus to this place. But I think it's really needed. And I think that students really appreciate it. And I know that the classes I've taught, particularly in African history, have been kind of um, a draw for students because they just don't know anything about the place. And it was the same when I was at Carroll and teaching African history. So I feel 
really grateful that my academic background and preparation in African history has, and my research too, has allowed me to teach those kinds of classes because I think they're really needed and I think it's an area where students want to know more, but they often just don't have the opportunity to know more. And then in terms of online versus on campus, I just gave a presentation on online teaching in terms of managing discussion forums, which was really a lot of fun. And I drew a lot of my experience at SNHU. And, you know, one of the things I found myself saying is that online teaching and on-campus teaching are that different. Students want engagement. They want to know that their instructor is passionate about their material. They want to have interesting assignments and they want to have, you know, interesting readings. But online and on-campus students are different in that online students have very rich and diverse lives just like on-campus students but you know maybe they're working full-time or maybe they're in a place that doesn't have an institution of higher education or maybe they've got a family that they're also engaged with so in some ways they need different things from the instructor as well i think what i try to do in both settings is to be present to be prepared to be engaged to really be passionate about my material and to make sure that i am delivering uh, an instructional experience that really speaks to students. And so uh, one of the things I've noticed in on-campus classes is that here at U of M we use Moodle. And so, you know, when I can deliver things like online videos to my students, or I can have them interact in a forum setting between classes, or I can have them do the kinds of things electronically that they enjoy, that sort of taps into that online experience. And then in the online experience, when I can make that connection with students, that really helps them to engage with the material. I think that's really important. So whether it's on a forum, having just one of those cool back and forth discussions where you just keep talking about issues, which I had uh, recently, or whether it's over email saying, hey, you know what, like, I noticed you haven't been on the forums for a while. I just wanted to see how things are going. And then they write back and they're like, oh, yeah, I've just had quite a bit going on, but I really want to stay engaged with the class. You know, what can we do? Just making that personal connection. So while there are pretty important differences, I think, between the two spaces, I actually think they have more in common than people think. And yet I do find myself saying, okay, I should do this for my, you know, in-person class. And then, oh yeah, I should try that for my online class. And sometimes the two are sort of interacting and, and forming each other. And other times, you know, they, they do remain quite separate. So uh, I think one of the things I enjoy about teaching online is the flexibility that it offers and that I can really work at any time, you know, whether it's late or night or the middle of the day. And, and I think that's really a unique feature. And the thing I really do appreciate about both here at U of M when I do it and at SNHU is that online teaching allows us to reach a population of students who might not otherwise have the opportunity to pursue a degree in higher education. And that's very meaningful for me. So um, I think that's important. I think it's important that schools like SNHU have degrees in history so that students can say, hey, I'm going to earn a history degree online. And I know that I'm going to have a fantastic experience doing so. Going back to your visiting assistant professor position, so the, you said this isn't tenure track and it's not tenured. And, right. and that makes sense. Are right. there service obligations with that? Like, do you have to serve on committees or anything? Or is this more like an adjunct type position where you're you're just there to teach and then you get to leave yeah. when you're done? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, technically, like my job classification through HR is as an adjunct. But one of the things I really appreciate about my position here is I've kind of gotten to take my most favorite parts of my job from my previous institution and focus on those. And not necessarily have to do all of the sort of committee work that I did before, which I really did enjoy. I was actually on the faculty development committee at Carroll for six years and I loved it. And so now, for example, I'm serving on the um, advisory board for the faculty development office here, just purely because I want to. So one of the things I really like about my, the newest incarnation of my job is it allows me to do the things I really like because I want to do them. 
And it also has given me a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of doing things like finishing the book. With my previous position, I just wasn't able to carve out the time that I needed to really fully focus on the manuscript, and I have been able to do that here. And um, it's also allowed me to be able to do things like have a family. So I just had a, a little girl about a year and a half ago. And the thing I really appreciate about my job, both at U of M and at SNHU, is, and is that it really provides me with the flexibility to be able to spend a lot of time with her. I care for her about four days a week and then work on campus three days a week. Um, and that's great. Like that's the kind of flexibility that a lot of people don't have in their lives. And so I'm very fortunate to have that with this position right now. Well, congratulations on your daughter. Thank you. I appreciate that, too. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons that we are talking to you today is because, as you just mentioned, you're working on a book and you're on the verge of publishing the book. And we're, you're going to talk about the book more in the sound bites. But uh, without getting too much detail into the content of the book, maybe we could talk a little bit about the actual book publication process. So where did you get the topic? How, what got you started on this project? And how did it start to evolve into a publication? A couple things. So the, the book itself is drawn from my dissertation. So it was originally a dissertation that I wrote at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my PhD. And one of the questions I was reviewing for the filibustering history podcast asked, well, what, what do I wish I had known? I think what I wish I had known was how to publish a book. <laughs> we we all wish that, yeah. <laughs> and I wish that I would have paid a little bit more attention to what a book should do and how that's different from a dissertation. But I did the dissertation and then I realized that it was important for me to really transform it into a book for a number of reasons. Um, my previous institution did not require the publication of a book, but I felt like I had a story to tell and I didn't think that sort of sending it out as individual articles would do the topic justice. So while I did publish some articles based on the, the dissertation, I really wanted to turn the dissertation into a book and have, you know, my argument and my message sort of fully complete in that way. So it evolved in a number of ways. One of the things that was interesting is that I didn't really realize when I was doing my initial dissertation research that I was working with a lot of surveillance files. And it wasn't until I met a dear friend and colleague who is just coming out with a book too called colonial suspects that I was working with surveillance files. So as I started to really revise the manuscript and as I started to really think about the direction I wanted to take, I realized that I had something to say about how states survey immigrant populations and why that matters. And then I also noticed in the historiography that I was working with that there wasn't really a connection between colonial policies pursued in the colonies in places like West Africa and how it is that immigrants were received after decolonization. People either worked on that colonial period or they worked on the post-colonial period, but there wasn't a lot of overlap between the two. And French history itself is very compartmentalized so that if you work on the interwar period, you don't work on World War II. And if you work on World War II, you don't work on the post-war period. And if you work on the post-war period, you certainly don't really do much with the 30s or the 20s or the Great War. And I realized that I had the opportunity to bring in that colonial era and really talk about how it influenced a whole host of issues such as how immigrants protest politically in a place like France and how the state responds, particularly in terms of surveillance, but also in terms of the social welfare. So I think what I realized is that I had a broader argument to make that actually encompassed more of the 20th century than I originally thought, in part because I was trained in this way that was very sort of chopped up, like post-war, interwar, World War II, that 
kind of thing. And I didn't really see that I could make some of those broader links. So you've actually made a lot of really great connections um, from the excerpts that I've read from the book. And there's something that I did want to get into just a little bit um, as far as research, because when we think about archives, usually um, you know, students think about going to a collection of primary sources or diving into secondary right. sources. One thing that I don't think they necessarily consider is how you interact with classified or recently declassified information, as well as how you protect the the yeah. names of some people. And I, you know, I noticed in the book itself that you mentioned that you've changed some names, ex except for the major players. So just wondering um, how you come to that conclusion as a historian to be able to adjust certain things and make changes in order to protect the people oh, that sure. you're actually studying, right. as well as what it takes to do research in in those classified, less accessible archives. That's a great question. So there's a process in France that I'll start with here to answer the question. It's called the derogation process. And the derogation process, it doesn't have a very good translation into English, but it's sort of like the Freedom of Information Act that we have here. Although people seeking the Freedom of Information Act in terms of access, I think, um, have a little more success here in the U.S. for a whole host of reasons than people seeking classified information in France. So I didn't know about this process. So I showed up in France, you know, an eager graduate student having just finished my comps and my prelims and, you know, getting my proposal together and getting the opportunity to go do research in France. So I showed up and I was like, okay, I'd like to see the following files. And the French archives are set up like a lot of European archives in that there's kind of a national research center. So in France, it's actually split between three different major research centers. So there's the contemporary archives that I work at, there's the National Archives in Paris, and there's the Overseas Archives, which is located at Aix-en-Provence, which is in the south of France. There's sort of a movement to try to bring them all together. I don't know if that will ever truly happen. But so I show up at the contemporary archives and I'm like, oh, I'd like to see the following files. And they're like, oh, those are sous dérogation. And I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, that means they're classified. And I was like, well, being an American, I was like, so where's the form I fill out to unclassify them? And they kind of looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, no, you've got to have some kind of process. And so Did they you just say, like, I'm American, well, can you declassify those, please? Yeah, yeah, I didn't say it in so many terms. But, you know, you, you just kind of have this view of how the world works, and then you find out that it doesn't always work like that. So I remember crying on the phone with an archivist who was trying to help me through the process and I had done the process all wrong, you know, cause you're working in a second language and that's a hard thing to do. So I literally spent that first year of research. I did get to do a lot of research in documents that weren't classified, but I spent a lot of time that first year going through that derogation process. And the challenge there is that you can't see what's in the box because you can't see the box and you have to work strictly with inventories or inventaire as they say in French. So, you're looking at somebody else's interpretation of what's in the box and you're hoping that there's something in there that will relate to your research. And so sometimes I would get really lucky once I could see the file and it, it pertained to exactly what I was doing. And other times I would get a file and I was like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. So it was a really stressful process. Luckily, I did have an archivist who was sort of on my side for reasons I still don't understand. And he actually pushed through a lot of my requests particularly those at the Ministry of Interior. So the Ministry of Interior in France is sort of the state security apparatus, and they control police, they control all kinds of things. So their documentation is often very sensitive, and the state has a vested interest in making sure that it controls the flow of information in terms of what the state is doing with particular populations. And so there were probably 
I think around five dossier that I just was not allowed to see. And I kept reapplying and reapplying and he kept writing me back and saying, I'm really sorry, you can't see those. And so now to this day, I still wonder what's in them because clearly there was just something that they didn't want me to see. Some of the stuff that they released, I was really surprised by because, you know, it didn't necessarily paint the French state in a very positive light, but I was lucky enough to get to look at them. And then some of it is classified simply because the classification system works such that they'll put things under like 60-year derogation or 100-year derogation. So it doesn't matter what is in that file. If it's under that classification, you're not supposed to see it freely until 60 years has passed or 100 years has passed. And then when you go through the derogation process, they give you an exemption for that. But when you was asked, how do you deal with them? Well, you're not supposed to take pictures of them. You're not supposed to photocopy or reproduce them. So I literally gave myself carpal tunnel syndrome sitting in the archives just typing for literally eight hours a day so i would get there and i would start typing at like you know nine in the morning and i would type until the archives closed with a brewery break for lunch and that's that was the only way i had to record the information and i did see when i was at aix-en-provence uh, doing some research i did see someone removed from the archive for violating the policy so if you violate the policy and you do start recording the documents via camera or photocopy, they could actually strip you of your archival privileges, which essentially then ends your career because you, you have to have the archives at least on some level. And one of the rules is that you can't divulge personal information. And so I did have to change names in the manuscript of key figures that I had been studying in the records, but whose names I couldn't um, release, which was really interesting and I think challenging for a historian. I think other disciplines like sociology and anthropology are more comfortable doing that. I think historians are a little bit less comfortable because we want the historical record to be as actual. And then I had to make the hard call and, you know, I just went ahead and did it that, you know, when I looked at information on someone like Sally Ndongo, who's a key figure in my book, that I needed to use those records, but that I was keeping his name. So <laughs> I hope nothing bad happens to me. <laughs> And I had a lot of people who said I was crazy for continuing down this road. I had a lot of people who said I should change my topic. I had some people who said that I wouldn't find Africans in the archives ever, which is almost a direct quote from a rather well-known sociologist. So I had a lot of barriers to the project, but I guess I am just a determined Montanan and I decided to just push through and do the best that I could. And so that means that I've gotten to use a lot of documentation that's not ever been used before, but the process itself was quite painful, especially for a graduate student who's there with limited knowledge of the archival system in the first place and also unlimited money, you know, because Paris is a very expensive city. So the longer you have to be there, the more money you have to pay. And so that was challenging. I actually ended up having to go back three more times to continue my research in part because of the delay that I had with the derogation process. Wow, that is quite a uh, interesting story. It, it is kind of interesting <laughs> to hear about graduate students suddenly being Kind of forcing their way through the declassification process in a foreign right. country that that in itself right. is quite an accomplishment so bravo <laughs> thank you yeah. so so this research is you've been developing it into a book it started out as your as your dissertation what is the editing process like you mentioned that you wish you had kind of known more about the book process and all of that so what is that process when you're when you've got a finished dissertation you graduate that's great now, yeah. what is the actual process you have to go through to turn it into a book? What did you? What changes did you make to it? 
Oh my gosh, I transformed the whole thing. I mean, first of all, I think when you're writing a dissertation, you're sort of a rookie writer. I mean, of course, unless you've done two PhDs, like this is really the first major thing you've done. I mean, your master's thesis is important, but this is like the first sort of book length thing that you've done. So I think that you just sort of take on a lot of the jargon of graduate school itself. But publishers don't want that. And publishers also absolutely do not want an unrevised dissertation. And they say that directly on their website. So you've got to first think about what you want the book to say to a broader audience and how you can sort of, for lack of a better phrase, undissertation it. Does that make sense? So you've got to take out a lot of the jargon, a lot of the historiography, a lot of the things that we do in dissertations to kind of position ourselves in the field publishers don't want that and you know readers quite frankly could probably care less so unless they're particular scholars in a particular field so you've got to kind of think about telling a broader story you've got to make it more accessible and sort of move away from the jargon and a lot of times it means doing major revisions and sort of reconstructions of the manuscript itself I think all of us you know who finish dissertations know that you're doing it under a particular time crunch because you only have a certain amount of time in graduate school from the time you finish your prelims or your comps to the time that you are supposed to finish your dissertation and if you're there and you know you don't have a ton of funding or your advisor is not really interested in extending your deadlines and you've got to really work within that time frame so for me i had to finish the dissertation under the threat of losing my tenure track position if i didn't i was abd when i first started my job at carroll so to say that i rushed through the finishing process would be rather an understatement um, so I first sort of had to contend with that and sort of figure out how to transform a dissertation that was done under extreme time pressure into a book that publishers would be interested in. And then it's also an opportunity, at least for me, I, I can't speak for others. I haven't talked to people extensively about this, but for me, it was also an opportunity to really bring in issues that I wasn't able to cover in the dissertation. So like I mentioned before, I realized that I had a story to tell about surveillance. And so I was able to really start looking extensively at secondary literature on surveillance in a variety of contexts to inform my own work. So I have an entire chapter on surveillance that was born out of just a piece from another chapter. And then I had a chapter in the dissertation that didn't make it into the final draft. And it was on this political protest surrounding the deaths of five immigrants in um, January of 1970 and the protests that followed those and also the funeral that followed. And I realized that it was part of the story that I wanted to tell in terms of different types of political protests. So I was actually able to bring that in. And that was really exciting because it was one of my favorite chapters to write. But for whatever reason at the time, I just couldn't really figure out how to fit it into that broader narrative. And so the revision process allowed me to do that. And so you know, the first thing you do is you just kind of look through all the chapters and figure out where are we? Like, what what's going on in these chapters? What do I need to do differently? Then it's really about perhaps continuing to do research, which I did, and keeping up with the literature, and then restructuring the book. I was lucky enough at Carroll to have a sabbatical for a semester, and I remember keeping a word count, and I wrote something like between 40 and 50,000 words that semester alone, just revising and reconfiguring the dissertation into a manuscript. And for me, the editing process is constant. I'm still doing editing. We're at the copy editing stage of the book right now, and I'm still, you know, working on that sort of thing. So the editing process is sort of an ongoing process. And, you know, you're constantly finding new secondary sources that can inform you. In fact, I was just reviewing a book recently, and I was like, oh, man, I wish I would have had this book when I was finishing the manuscript because it actually made 
some things a lot clearer for me that I wasn't able to clarify the way that I wanted in part because she hadn't published the book yet. Things like that I think are, are fun. And it's kind of fun to think as one of my colleagues said about writing the book that you want to write. You know, the dissertation is one thing, but figuring out what book do you want to write and what story do you want to tell? And, and that's something that I tried to really focus on for the manuscript. In all honesty, with that editing process, how many chapters on Foucault, post-colonial identity, and identity politics did you have to eliminate to make this book that people wanted? Oh, like to a read? thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Lordy. Every time I think about Foucault, I think about the fact that in graduate school we had to read Discipline and Punish like six times, and that's across two different graduate programs. And I was like, you know, dear faculty, he wrote other things. So why don't we read like the history of sexuality? Why don't we read some of the other things he wrote? But now it was always discipline and punish. And I yeah, always, that is kind of always stick out of that. Always the go-to, yep. But it must have helped with the whole idea of surveillance. And oh, yes. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, you did, absolutely. you had um, an opportunity to doubly get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes more than I wanted to. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, in grad school, every time I saw Foucault, I just glazed over and just skipped that chapter. It's just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. See, I really, I really loved uh, Foucault and getting into his theories and wrestling with it because I'm not going to lie, it didn't make sense to me completely the first, second, third, or tenth time that I read it. <laughs> but, um, but it was funny because I remember when I was writing my master's thesis, part of that in the introduction is talking about the various theories that you're interested in and bringing that together. So I started talking about this and then uh, like Foucault and these other theorists. And then when I went in to um, defend my thesis, my committee, some people on my committee were like, you know, it was really interesting to read that introduction and then look at your actual thesis because what you've written is a very solid and straightforward history of this topic that in no way represents the theorists that influenced you. And I was like, oh, that's actually a really interesting point. <laughs> I have um, similar tendencies. I have got all this theory in my head, and somehow when I write it down, it doesn't come out. I don't know why. It just, I guess because we're historians, like to tell stories, right? At least I do. And I sometimes have a harder time pinning the theories to those stories, if that makes sense. I think the issue that I had with Foucault is that I'm an Americanist, and so <laughs> it was, it wasn't necessarily that I would, you know, glaze over every time I read Foucault. It's just that it felt like when I was in grad school that every monograph we read, the author always had to name drop Foucault, even if right. it seemed to make right. no sense. <laughs> they would right. just always talk about the, you know, use, using the, the paradigms of Foucault and like, no, come on, <laughs> just use your own paradigms. Don't use his. Come on. Yeah, but you're also a native Californian and he loved San Francisco, so you should have some type of <laughs> I just, yeah, well, again, I was an Americanist, so I don't think... Now that I think about it, I don't think I ever actually had an assignment to read Foucault, but oh. it's just every monograph had its own interpretation of Foucault, so I felt like mm -hmm. I knew, knew Foucault, <laughs> yeah. and he just seemed very overrated to me because, again, everybody <laughs> name-dropped him, and used, most of them did it in a very, well, jargony way, and that's just very right. alienating for something that's already <laughs> difficult to understand. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was always what got me about postmodernists, the way that they played with language and sometimes made their texts completely inaccessible. It's like you're yes. writing a book. Could you please yes. explain something in the way that most people can understand it without yes. an additional dictionary or having to learn postmodernist <laughs> <Yeah>. language? <laughs> right, right, that's so true.
I think that might be why I haven't published a monograph yet is because I don't want to contribute to that mindset. <laughs> it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I don't want to contribute to that mindset. I would read it, though. I understand. I love it, too. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got two copies sold then. Let's talk a little bit about the actual book publication process. So you've got a manuscript. You know you want to turn it into a book. You, I may have the timeline wrong, but you're starting to revise the book, kind of tear tear the manuscript apart, put it back together, put it together in a new way that you wanted to do it, in, you want, the way you wanted it to happen in a book. What's the actual process? I imagine you have to put in a book proposal. How, do you, how did you decide which publisher to go with? Right. And right. what was the actual process once you made that decision? Yeah, that's, those are great questions. So I got really interesting advice on this. I got advice that suggested that I needed to send the proposal out as soon as possible and then, you know, finish the manuscript once they wanted it. And I got advice that said, no, the manuscript had to be done and ready before you sent out the proposal. So I actually went with the second piece of advice and I tried to finish the manuscript before I sent out the proposal. But then because of my previous job, which was demanding in a lot of different ways. I just was really struggling to finish the manuscript. And so I decided to start writing the proposal. And honestly, the proposal was and still is the hardest thing I've ever written. It was harder than the dissertation. It was harder than the manuscript. It was harder than my master's thesis. It was harder than any essay I've ever written. And I I still can't tell you why. It took me years to pull the proposal together. And I still don't know that it entirely captures what I'm trying to do in the book. So that was really hard. And there's a lot of stuff online and a lot of books that you can read about how to write a proposal. And I did all of that. I bought books. I searched online. I read other people's proposals. I must have gotten three or four or five different proposals from different friends. I reviewed them. I had my husband review them. I had him distill it down into what to do. And I remember one of the the original book proposal that I wrote, I sent to a friend and he is very, he's a terrific historian and he's also very critical and he also has no bedside manner. And I appreciate all of those things about him, but he ripped the book proposal apart. And, you know, we're all pretty tough at this stage of our careers. We've undergone a lot of criticism in graduate school. We've given conference presentations where people have pretty pointedly questioned our work. We've worked with faculty members who are very demanding. So, you, you think at that point that you're pretty, you know, battle hardened and you're like, no, I can totally handle this. And I was just devastated by his feedback. And again, I think it was just this weirdly emotional thing to try to communicate and convey what I was trying to do in the book. And also the hope that I could get the book published and wondering if I actually had the fortitude to write a proposal that could. So after he eviscerated my original proposal, I regrouped and I really started from scratch. And I just started to really try to tell the story that I was trying to tell in a way that made sense in the proposal. And so when I went on sabbatical, I was really able to focus on the proposal and I did so. And then I, at that point, what I did, and I don't know if other people do this, but I really started to look for publishers who had a vested interest in publishing, not just French history or European history, but something on immigration, something on race, something on identity, something on colonialism and decolonization in the post-colonial era. So I looked for publishers who had published works like mine. Um, and I started to compile a list. And then I started to realize that it's going to take a lot of work to send in a book proposal, because you not only have the proposal itself, which for me, again, was a, a years in the making process, but you've got to include a sample chapter. So that was a source of stress. So I had the same very critical friend read my sample chapter several times and got a lot of feedback on that. 
and then you have to come up with a table of contents. So you've got to have, you know, a sense of, of how the book's laid out and what kind of illustrations you might want to include. And then the other thing that is really stressful about the process is that you basically have one shot to convince the publisher that this is a good idea. Meaning if you send your proposal to a press that you really want to publish with and the proposal is not convincing to them, it's not like they're going to take a second look at the proposal. Do you know what I'm saying? So I wasn't sure how to approach that because there were some presses that I was like, yeah, you know, that might be a good press. And there were some presses that I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to publish my book with this press. So my husband actually came up with the idea of doing some test submissions. So he's like, why don't you send it out to a publisher who you know is going to reject it just for the practice of doing so and just to see if they give you some feedback. And I was like, wow, that's a brilliant idea. And so I did that. I sent it out. I kind of did a three-tier process. So I sent it out to a press that I knew would reject it. And I think that was a good idea because then I just got rejected right out of the gates. And that was kind of nice. It's kind of like when you get your first rejection letter on the job market and you're like, oh, okay, well, this isn't as bad as I thought it would be. Or you get your first rejection letter for grad school and you're like, oh, okay. I mean, this is fine. Like, I'm still standing. It's, it's okay. So I got rejected there. And then I sent it to a press that I really thought might accept it, but was kind of on the fence, you know, and they were really very, they were great to work with. They wrote back and they were like, we spent a lot of time looking at this proposal. You know, I think you make a good case for the project, but it just doesn't do the following things. And they basically told me what it didn't do and why it didn't fit into their publication priorities. So I kind of regrouped after that and I made some adjustments and then I sent it to a press that I really wanted to publish with. And they literally wrote me back the next day or two days later, I think the editor even like instant messaged me on Twitter or something. It was really intense. And they were like, okay, great. We want the manuscript. And I was like, but it's not done yet. Oh, wow. Because by that point I had just decided, well, like I've got to stop just working on the manuscript. I need to start sending out some proposals. So I wrote back, I was like, great, you know, I'm on sabbatical. I'm going to try to finish it. And then an interesting thing happened called life. So I, went back to my previous job and I resigned, as I mentioned, and that sort of set my life into a whole different realm. You know, I moved, I started a new job, I started to focus on some other things. And so I was working on the manuscript the whole time, but I didn't get it to them in the time that, that they had hoped for it. And so in the meantime, one of my friends ended up publishing a book with them and I was really excited for her. And I thought, well, maybe I should just send it back to them when it's done. And, you know, I was really close. So I finished the manuscript literally two weeks before I had my daughter, which was kind of neat. And I sent it to a friend and she read it while I was having the baby and then, you know, recovering from having her and being with her. And she sent me the comments back and I was like, well, this is great. So I started to revise the manuscript with the idea of sending it back to that original press and just saying, hey, you know what? Sometimes life happens, but here's the manuscript that you asked for a while ago. But then the impossible happened and a publisher actually got in touch with me out of the blue. And I literally had Chloe, I think at that point she was six weeks old. And this publisher emailed me. I was like, I've you know been looking at your work online and we're starting this new series. And we think that your book would really fit in well with this series. And I was like, what? Like I actually had my husband read it because at that point, you know, you're six weeks into an infant's life and you're not sleeping very much, if at all. And so I was like, really am I understanding? This like, might be another hallucination. What? Yeah, like, am I understanding what he's asking for? And, you know, Sean hadn't slept that much either, but he was getting a little more sleep than me. And he was like, no, I think he wants you to send in the proposal. So I was like, okay, well. So I sent in the proposal, and hilariously, I've never mentioned this to him, but I was so sleep-deprived at that point that I forgot to send him the sample chapter. <laughs> 
makes me laugh just to say it. So I sent him the proposal and I sent him the table of contents, but I forgot the sample chapter and he never asked for it. And it took me a while to realize I hadn't sent it in. So then what was interesting is they send that particular press. This doesn't happen with every press, but that particular press sends the, the proposal out for review. So the proposal went out to three different reviewers. And so for the month of October that year, it was out to reviewers and the first review that I got was really tough. The person basically said like there's no merit to this project. Don't publish it. And you can imagine that I was rather crushed. But to the editor's credit, he's like, no, you know what? We're going to see what the other reviewers say. And the second review was more positive. It said, you know, here are some issues with the project as I see it. And here are the suggestions for how to remedy this. But I think that with these changes, this could be a good manuscript to publish. And so it was basically like the journal article equivalent of like a revise and resubmit. Like if you make the following changes, then you should publish this manuscript. And then so the whole thing was really writing on the third review and the editor who's British. So he was never ever going to be like as direct as maybe an American would be in that setting. He was like, well, let's just wait for the third review. So the third review was really positive and basically gave them the thumbs up to publish it. So at that point, I didn't know what the editor was going to do. And he basically was like, okay, here's your contract. And so I, I signed a contract for the book before I sent in the final manuscript, which is not common in academic publishing. I guess they call it an advanced contract. So that was interesting. So by that point, Chloe was two months old and I'm still looking, no, she was three months old. So I'm still looking at things like through the lens of not sleeping very much. And so I actually had a colleague of mine and a, a friend of ours who's a pretty well-known author read the contract so that I knew what I was signing. And they gave me some suggestions, but overall it was pretty standard. So then I decided that it would be a good idea to have the book manuscript due at the same time I was going back to work, which was a very curious choice on my part. Because I could have said any time, I could have said, oh, I can get it to you next summer, or I can get it to you next fall. But I was like, how can I get it to you in March? And then I started the semester with a five-month-old and three classes, including two on campus, one online. Oh, That's God. a whole other story. So I was like, oh, and I've got a book manuscript to finish. So basically what I'm saying is I don't remember last spring very well at all. I do know that I finished all three classes. Everybody survived. I do know that I got the book manuscript in. I don't know what else happened. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Chloe was thriving and doing well, but I really couldn't tell you. It was just a haze of forum posts and book revision, but somehow I actually managed to make it in on the deadline day. So I submitted it on the day that I said I would, which for me is always dicey for whatever reason. So I got it in and then it went out for review one last time. So that was another chance for the publisher to be like, actually the review came out and they say don't publish it so they could have yanked it at that point because the contract was contingent on all sorts of things. So they sent it out for review and it came out positive and in fact the reviewer gave me a lot of really great feedback so I spent the summer working on those revisions I got those in and then last fall we were supposed to go into production but it was held up by some image problems I was having and that's another piece of advice I would give to uh, young faculty who are transitioning into the book publishing phase make sure you've got your images nailed down, which I did not. So I realized that I needed to get a lot of permissions. And there's still one image out there that I really desperately want in the book, and it's just not happening because of copyright issues. 
I can't find the original copyright and nobody is helping me with that. So I just decided to pull it, which is fine. So we got through that last fall. And so it started to go into copy editing basically in February. So right now we're working on me responding to the copy editors queries, which are interesting because you realize like it doesn't matter how many times you go through a manuscript, there are still things you can't see or don't catch or that don't make sense. So she's been asking me some really interesting questions, um, not only about the language that I'm using, but also about, you know, points that I'm trying to make. And she's British and I'm American. So we have two different interpretations of the English language. So, it, and she's got a pretty good sense of humor. So she's always like, I'm British and you're American, maybe in the US, you use it like this, but we use it like that. So I'm just kind of going with her recommendations as a British press, but that's basically the process. And I think a lot of that is representational of the experience overall. And some of it is definitely representational of my own personal experience. You know, like having a baby and then signing a book contract is not a normal thing to do. Yeah. That is a whirlwind experience. <laughs> yeah. When does the book come out? Uh, they say June. I think that might be ambitious, but they seem pretty dedicated to it. The other thing I'm realizing in this process is that once it goes into copy editing, you're working on their timeline. So they came back to me last. So when did the previous term at SNHU end? Was it last Monday that we submitted grades? Monday and Tuesday? I blocked like it out, but that's not right. Yeah, I yeah, know. Like we're week two. Yep. Yeah, yeah, last so, Tuesday. Yeah, so Tuesday. So I was getting my grades finalized for the SNHU end of that term. And they came back to me and they were like, we need your copy editing returned by like March 10th. And I was like, oh, that's going to be tough. And then I had another thing going on this week for work. So... I was like, uh, could I do it this date? They were like, no, we need it now. And I was like, oh, shoot. So I've been like madly trying to cram that in. So it's been really in an interesting process in that regard, trying to respect their time, but also trying to make sure that I'm paying attention to different obligations I have. So that's that's been really, it's made this month very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you will definitely have to keep us updated when the book comes out, because hopefully <laughs> I don't you. get you in trouble by saying it, but being able to read the introduction and conclusion has me wanting the middle. Oh, good. Well, that's I great. Yeah. yeah, I would be happy to send you a copy if you'd like. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, and I will post on you know our internal server and oh, let great. everybody know so we can get Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's, it's an academic book, so if we can get you five more sales that's oh, great. <laughs> a lot of i joke but a lot of my my friends who have gone through the process and have have uh, published books i mean <laughs> they they're like when they tell me the numbers i'm like oh so we're not talking harry potter but that's okay no <laughs> no in fact actually that was a really funny part of the contract signing the editor was very careful to say like it's going to be a small run to start with in terms of hard copy you know hardcover but we'll do a bigger run on paperback and one of the pieces of advice that i would gotten about another press was that they went really slowly into paperback but i've been assured that it's going to go into paperback you know as quickly as possible so that's good news and the other thing i didn't think to ask when i signed the contract was what was the price point on the hardback book and that was a little bit of a shocking experience for me so Sort of things that you learn along the way to it's ask about. About ninety nine, ninety five. No. Oh, north of that. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no. I know. Like, let's talk about that paperback dish. That's actually pretty good. I've penny. talked to a couple of friends of mine who have published. They got, they did the hardcover, but then I guess they didn't reach the minimum number of sales, so the publisher just, you know, cut the whole project off and never even went to hard, to uh, soft cover. Oh no! God, I yeah. Happens to me. Oof. Sounds like they might be doing yours concurrently, and those ones seem to go through. This this was I, so. I think these might have been much smaller presses where they did like a oh, hardcover. Okay. They probably good. printed like twelve copies, <laughs> and then just shut the oh, whole yeah. thing down or Here something. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, it also, fingers crossed, I mean, with the relevance to current issues with immigration and refugees and, you know, reactions to immigration, yeah. this... Yeah. This might be more lucrative, especially in like contemporary politics courses and things like right. that as well. Right. Well, thank yep. you. I appreciate that. I really do. Take care. Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye. You too. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. For James Fennessy and Gillian Glaze, I'm Rob Denning. Bye. Snoo you later, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yep. Oh, oh man. man.